Section 9 of The Life of Richard Nash, Esquire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Stevens. The Life of Richard Nash, Esquire, Late Master of Ceremonies at Bath, by Oliver Goldsmith. Edited by Peter Cunningham. Before gaming was suppressed, and in the meridian of his life and fortune, his benefactions were generally found to equal his other expenses. The money he got without pain he gave away without reluctance, and whenever unable to relieve a wretch who sued for assistance, he has been often seen to shed tears. A gentleman of broken fortune, one day standing behind his chair, as he was playing a game of piquet for two hundred pounds, and observing with what indifference he won the money, could not avoid whispering these words to another who stood by. Heavens! how happy would all that money make me! Nash, overhearing him, clapped the money into his hand, and cried, Go and be happy! About six and thirty years ago, a clergyman brought his family to Bath for the benefit of the waters. His wife laboured under a lingering disorder, which it was thought nothing but the hot wells could remove. The expenses of living there soon lessened the poor man's finances. His clothes were sold, piece by piece, to provide a temporary relief for his little family, and his appearance was at last so shabby that from the number of holes in his coat and stockings Nash gave him the name of Dr. Cullender. Our beau, it seems, was rude enough to make a jest of poverty, though he had sensibility enough to relieve it. The poor clergyman combated his distresses with fortitude, and, instead of attempting to solicit relief, endeavoured to conceal them. Upon a living of thirty pounds a year, he endeavoured to maintain his wife and six children, but all his resources at last failed him and nothing but famine was seen in the wretched family. The poor man's circumstances were at last communicated to Nash, who, with his usual cheerfulness, undertook to relieve him. On a Sunday evening, at a public tea-drinking at Harrison's, he went about to collect a subscription, and began it himself by giving five guineas. By this means two hundred guineas were collected in less than two hours and the poor family raised from the lowest despondence into affluence and felicity. A bounty so unexpected had a better influence even upon the woman's constitution than all that either the physicians or the waters of Bath could produce, and she recovered. But his good offices did not rest here. He prevailed upon a nobleman of his acquaintance to present the doctor with a living of a hundred and sixty pounds a year which made that happiness he had before produced in some measure permanent in the severe winter of the year seventeen thirty nine his charity was great useful and extensive he frequently at that season of calamity entered the houses of the poor whom he thought too proud to beg and generously relieved them the colliers were at this time particularly distressed and in order to excite compassion, a number of them yoked themselves to a wagon loaded with coals and drew it into Bath, and presented it to Mr. Nash. Their scheme had the proper effect. Mr. Nash procured them a subscription, and gave ten guineas towards it himself. The weavers also shared his bounty at that season. 
they came begging in a body into Bath, and he provided a plentiful dinner for their entertainment, and gave each a week's subsistence at going away. There are few public charities to which he was not a subscriber, and many he principally contributed to support. Among others, Mr. Annesley, that strange example of the mutability of fortune and the inefficacy of our laws, shared his interest and bounty. I have now before me a well-written letter, addressed to Mr. Nash, in order to obtain his interest for that unhappy gentleman. It comes from Mr. Henderson, a Quaker, who was Mr. Annesley's father's agent. This gentleman warmly espoused the young adventurer's interest, and, I am told, fell with him. London, October 23, 1756. My good friend, when I had the honour of conversing with thee at Tunbridge in September last, concerning that most singular striking case of Mr. Annesley, whom I have known since he was about six years old, I being then employed by the late Lord Baron of Oltham, his father, as his agent. From what I know of the affairs of that family, I am well assured that Mr. Annesley is the legitimate son of the late Lord Baron of Oltham, and in consequence thereof is entitled to the honours and estates of Anglesey. Were I not well assured of his right to those honours and estates, I would not give countenance to his claim. I well remember that thou then madest me a promise to assist him in soliciting a subscription. That was then begun at Tunbridge. But as that place was not within the limits of thy province, thou couldst not promise to do much there. But thou saidst that in case he would go to Bath in the season, thou wouldst then and there show how much thou wouldst be his friend. And now, my good friend, as the season is come on, and Mr. Annesley now at Bath, I beg leave to remind thee of that promise and that thou wilt keep in full view the honour, the everlasting honour, that will naturally redound to thee from thy benevolence, and crown all the good actions of thy life. I say, now in the vale of life, to relieve a distressed young nobleman, to extricate so immense an estate from the hands of oppression, to do this will fix such a ray of glory on thy memory, as will speak forth thy praise to future ages. This, with great respect, is the needful from thy assured friend, William Henderson. Be pleased to give my respects to Mr. Annesley and his spouse. Mr. Nash punctually kept his word with this gentleman. He began the subscription himself with the utmost liberality, and procured such a list of encouragers as at once did honour to Mr. Annesley's cause and their own generosity. What a pity it was that this money, which was given for the relief of indigence only, went to feed a set of reptiles, who batten upon our weakness, miseries, and vice. It may not be known to the generality of my readers that the last act of the comedy called Aesop, which was added to the French plot of Burso by Mr. Vanbrugh, was taken from a story told of Mr. Nash upon a similar occasion. He had, in the early part of life, made proposals of marriage to Miss V. of D. His affluence at that time, and the favour which he was in with the nobility, readily induced the young lady's father to favour his addresses. However, upon opening the affair to herself, she candidly told him her affections were placed upon another, and that she could not possibly comply. Though this answer satisfied Mr. Nash, 
it was by no means sufficient to appease the father, and he peremptorily insisted upon her obedience. Things were carried to the last extremity, when Mr. Nash undertook to settle the affair, and desiring his favoured rival to be sent for, with his own hand presented his mistress to him, together with a fortune equal to what her father intended to give her. Such an uncommon instance of generosity had an instant effect upon the severe parent. He considered such disinterestedness as a just reproach to his own mercenary disposition, and took his daughter once more into favour. I wish, for the dignity of history, that the sequel could be concealed, but the young lady ran away with her footman before half a year was expired, and her husband died of grief. In general, the benefactions of a generous man are but ill bestowed. His heart seldom gives him leave to examine the real distress of the object which sues for pity. His good nature takes the alarm too soon, and he bestows his fortune on only apparent wretchedness. The man naturally frugal, on the other hand, seldom relieves, but when he does, his reason, and not his sensations, generally find out the object. Every instance of his bounty is therefore permanent, and bears witness to his benevolence. Of all the immense sums which Nash lavished upon real or apparent wretchedness, the effects, after a few years, seemed to disappear. His money was generally given to support immediate want, or to relieve improvident indolence, and therefore it vanished in an hour. Perhaps towards the close of life, were he to look round on the thousand he had relieved, he would find but few made happy, or fixed by his bounty in a state of thriving industry. It was enough for him that he gave to those that wanted, he never reflected that charity to some might impoverish himself without relieving them. He seldom considered the merit or the industry of the petitioner, or he rather fancied that misery was an excuse for indolence and guilt. It was a usual saying of his, when he went to beg for any person in distress, that they who could stoop to the meanness of solicitation must certainly want the favour for which they petitioned. In this manner, therefore, he gave away immense sums of his own, and still greater which he procured from others. His way was, when any person was proposed to him as an object of charity, to go round with his hat first among the nobility, according to their rank, and so on, till he left scarce a single person unsolicited. They who go thus about to beg for others generally find a pleasure in the task. They consider, in some measure, every benefaction they procure as given by themselves, and have at once the pleasure of being liberal, without the self-reproach of being profuse. But of all the instances of Nash's bounty, none does him more real honour than the pains he took in establishing an hospital at Bath, in which benefaction, however, Dr. Oliver had a great share. This was one of those well-guided charities, dictated by reason and supported by prudence. By this institution the diseased poor might recover health, when incapable of receiving it in any other part of the kingdom. As the disorders of the poor who could expect to find relief at Bath were mostly chronical, the expense of maintaining them there was found more than their parishes thought proper to afford. They therefore chose to support them in a continual state of infirmity by a small allowance at home, 
rather than be at the charge of an expensive cure. An hospital, therefore, at Bath, it was thought, would be an asylum to those disabled creatures, and would, at the same time, give the physician a more thorough insight into the efficacy of the waters, from the regularity with which such patients would be obliged to take them. These inducements, therefore, influenced Dr. Oliver and Nash to promote a subscription towards such a benefaction. The design was set on foot so early as the year 1711, but was not completed till the year 1742. This delay, which seems surprising, was in fact owing to the want of a proper fund for carrying the work into execution. What I said above, of charity being the characteristic virtue of the present age, will be more fully evinced by comparing the old and new subscriptions for this hospital. These will show the difference between ancient and modern benevolence. When I run my eye over the list of those who subscribed in the year 1723, I find the subscription in general seldom rise above a guinea each person, so that at that time, with all their efforts, they were unable to raise four hundred pounds. But in about twenty years after, each particular subscription was greatly increased, ten, twenty, thirty pounds being the most ordinary sums then subscribed and they soon raised above £2,000 for the purpose. Thus, chiefly by the means of Dr. Oliver and Mr. Nash, but not without the assistance of the good Mr. Allen, who gave them the stone for building and other benefactions, this hospital was erected, and it is at present fitted up for the reception of 110 patients, the cases mostly paralytic or leprous. The following conditions are observed previous to admittance. 1. The case of the patient must be described by some physician or person of skill in the neighbourhood of the place where the patient has resided for some time, and this description, together with a certificate of the poverty of the patient, attested by some persons of credit, must be sent in a letter postpaid directed to the Registrar of the General Hospital of Bath. 2. After the patient's case has been thus described and sent, he must remain in his usual place or residence till he has notice of a vacancy, signified by a letter from the registrar. 3. Upon receipt of such a letter, the patient must set forward for Bath, bringing with him this letter, the parish certificate, duly executed and allowed by two justices, and three pounds caution money if from any part of england or wales but if the patient comes from scotland or ireland then the caution money to be deposited before admission is the sum of five pounds four soldiers may instead of parish certificates bring a certificate from their commanding officers signifying to what corps they belong and that they shall be received into the same corps when discharged from the hospital in whatever condition they are but it is necessary that their cases be described and sent previously, and that they bring with them three pounds caution money. Note, the intention of the caution money is to defray the expenses of returning the patients after they are discharged from the hospital, or of their burial in case they die there. The remainder of the caution money, after these expenses are defrayed, will be returned to the person who made the deposit. End of section 9